This is Welcome Home Radio from the Fresno Association of Realtors on 940 ESPN. Well, good morning and welcome to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino, your host on our Valley's most informative real estate talk show. The reason it's the most informative is we have different guests every week bringing in their insight. And we have 4,000 members as uh, of the Fresno Association of Realtors. We have about 1,000 affiliate members. That would be affiliates would be, well, your, your lenders, your title companies, your termite inspectors. So they can all bring a different perspective to, to us. Um, and the reason we do this every week for the last 13 years, we want to provide good information that will help make informed decisions and get people to think about the process and also get out there and make a good game plan on purchasing a home and more importantly on keeping a home. Um, we don't want to go back to where we were in 2005, 6, 7 where everybody was out there sucking up their equity, uh, doing cash out refis with crazy exotic loans and then that was not sustainable many of them lost their homes. Well, today, to help me out with this, we have a guest, and that is Tony Tobin. Good morning. Good morning, Don. Thank you for having me. All right. Tony is with Tobin Loans of Western Pioneer Financial. So uh, you're going to bring, well, although you have that lender background, you're very much entrenched in the real estate industry. Yes. So the ideas that you have today are really interesting. Thank you. Because actually, I'm going to have to throw lending into the mix because uh, we're going to talk about how did we get here? We have such a housing shortage. Uh, How did we get here? What? It didn't just happen overnight. That's true. It's not like we went into shelter in place. Everybody took their home off the market, and all of a sudden, there were no homes to sell. Mm -hmm. That's not the case. Yeah, that's something I always wondered because you hear a housing crisis. So when you hear housing crisis, you're thinking, okay, there's not enough houses. How did all of a sudden there become not enough houses? Did we see a huge population boom? Did we see a bunch of houses go away? Are we seeing a bunch of rentals now available because everyone's moving into the house? How did this all occur? Now, mind you, this is based on my research. And from what I'm finding in builders I'm talking into and research I found, This has been a consistent problem since the Great Recession, and we kind of spoke about this earlier. Um, It seems builders have not been building to where we need them to build year after year. I believe the requirement is about 2 million new houses every year is what we need um, by, I think it's 2050, to get where we need to be. And And is that in the state or? No, nationwide. Nationwide, okay. And then year after year, we've only been about a million. So every year, we're not hitting the quota that we need. And therefore, falling further and further behind. Exactly. Um, now, I thinking about that aspect, too, you have low interest rates, which just kind of came onto the horizon a few years ago. Um, and then it kind of went away a little bit. So we saw a little bit of the housing issue, I think, like in 18 or so. And then it started dying down. But then, of course, during coronavirus, we saw interest rates plummet and values go up. And we saw a lot of people that were enticed to sell to sell. And the buying market kind of picked up again. 
And we're now in a situation where, I mean, you're working more real estate than I am. How are you getting an offer accepted nowadays? Oh, it's not very easy. Um, and it, it's taking more creativity in crafting an offer than ever before. And while well, I go back to the early 1980s when it took a lot of creativity, and that was because interest rates were at 17 mm percent -hmm. people couldn't afford that so um it uh, as a realtor oftentimes we have to do things like uh resolve the issues for the seller so uh the buyer is accommodating the seller for example we'll close the escrow in 30 days but then you get seven day the seller can have seven days free rent mm -hmm. to stay in the home that's good for the seller, certainly, because it, it allows them to get the check in their hand, know that the escrow is closed, and then move, then have the moving van come. Mm -hmm. Not so, it is an accommodation by the buyer because, well, they're paying the mortgage and the taxes at that point. Mm -hmm. And they don't, here they own a home and, and they don't get in. Exactly. So, but the, the, the creativity like that needs to be there. No, 100%. But at the end of the day, I think we just need to work on, you know, the bottom of the barrel, which is inventory. We could work on these uh, situations to help with, you know, being more creative, offering above asking, but then we run into the issue of housing getting to the point of unaffordability for the population of which is living in. Yeah. So how did we get here? How do we have so much a shortage and I'm going to give you a statistic mm -hmm. typically in Fresno city of Fresno and Clovis we're going to typically have 1500 to 2000 available listings mm -hmm. normally I would put someone in my car we're going to look two three four times at and each time we look it's going to be at three four or five houses mm -hmm. so by the by the time they decide on well, this is the one I want to make an offer. They've now seen 10 to 20 houses. That was normal or typical. And because I've done this so long, I think I, I can say what's normal and typical. Mm -hmm. It's not like I just lived through one, one phase of real estate. Mm -hmm. But now, I ran this yesterday. There's 317 active listings in Fresno and Clovis. 317. Now, if one home might get 15 offers on it, you can see where 317 homes isn't enough. Mm -hmm. So, ah. No, I'm is with it? you. So what we have to think about here is how are we gonna create this uh, development? So I've been talking to a few developers that I'm close with and I tried to see what the trials and tribulations are. And the thing you have to realize is, let's say you finally get a piece of land it's not like you can start building that day. There's rules, regulations, entitlements that have to go forth, and sometimes it could take several years before that building ever starts coming to fruition. And then you also have to take in consideration what's the price point gonna be. If you have demand as high as we are all aware of, what is the benefit for a builder to build a house that is, you know, 200, 250,000 when they could sell it for 400,000? So even if we get to the point of building, the affordability of homes isn't going to be there. Yeah. It, it, I talked to a builder recently who said it, it takes years, not months, from the time they 
start putting a development on paper mm -hmm. to the time they actually put the shovel in the ground. Mm -hmm. It's that's we're talking years, not months. So, and do do we know what the market's going to be like in the year twenty twenty three? No, no. So here these builders have to build with enough or plan with enough flexibility to where they could make that work in any market. Yeah, and that's very, very difficult. You have to know about where the city is going to go, where the population is going to go, where the economy is going to go. And do you want to be caught developing a piece of land, several million dollars out there, and then all of a sudden the economy changes? Oh, and so, we saw that in 2007. <laughs> yes, uh, we definitely did. And I was actually working in new home sales back then. I uh, started in lending, but I did real estate for a few years. So I was right in the belly of the beast. I mean, when we were you know, having to sell houses for significantly less just to keep the market moving the way that it should, and we saw developers just skip out of town, and they'd have their houses. I remember there was one builder, I think it was Lafferty, uh, their houses were 400, 450,000 around there, which back in 08 was not really relative to the Fresno market. And of course, they weren't able to go through. So, I mean, the values just kept on going up and up and up. And something you kind of touched on earlier is lending and the exotic loans and how we ended up there to begin with. Uh, we had something called negative interest or negam loans. And negative amortization loans led to the bigger issue. We had. Uh, cash out refis we had money we were able we weren't even checking people's income basically you said hey i'll pay it okay here's your money and no one really checked and things just kind of ballooned so you had people buying two three four investment properties that couldn't really afford their own house so when the market started going sideways they just let it go and everyone let it go and we ran into this issue now luckily now it seems we have learned from our mistakes. So when we're seeing this backward situation, these foreclosure situation, we're not just kicking people out. There was a huge problem with that. I remember showing houses back in the early thousands where you had to knock on the door at Realtor because there were people living in them. There was, uh, you know, people squatting in just about every open listing at that time. Yeah, I remember and, that. And it was, you know, it's a scary thing too. You have to think on the other end of the stick, like what if you were that person? You don't know where to go with your family. So being homeless, being kicked out of your house is a bigger problem than anyone would ever think. So the way they're doing it now is with these extensions of forbearance, with these new ways of modifying the loan, I feel like we're not going to have that foreclosure hit like we did before. Of course, if you can't afford anything and you don't have any job, they're going to have to do what they have to do. But in most cases, lenders are trying to work with people trying to keep them in their home because at the end of the day, from a lender standpoint, does it make sense to sell a house at 70, 60 percent of what you can, plus the waiting period it takes for them to foreclose, kick someone out, rebuild and sell it, or just modify it with the existing person, cover the interest so the note still carries? And I think <clears throat> that's going to be more the case it, the next round of uh, foreclosures. Mm -hmm. I, I, th I think that the lenders are going to work more with the existing people. Exactly. Except that this time, the existing people have equity to work with. Mm -hmm. um, we've seen prices go up. Not only that, the loans that they made in the last few years are positively amortized. Mm -hmm. Amorti how would you describe amortized? Well, basically what you want to do is when you get a loan is have an end date. Hey, you're going to borrow this money. So in about 30 years, you'll have nothing else to be paid. 
when you don't have that end date, when that amortization doesn't work into your benefit, or if you're not actually buying down to the principal, you're going to have that issue. So we had a lot of people get into houses before where they just did interest-only loans, where they were just paying that interest. So if you buy a $350,000 house and several years pass and it's still owe 350000 and values go down, all of a sudden you're upside down. So and that's what happened 15 exactly. years ago. Exactly. Yeah. So we're not seeing that happen right now. And granted, we're going to probably run into that issue now because of people overbuying in a sense, but on the other end of the stick, just losing their dollars. So if you're paying 10%, 20% above to get a house, well, you have to make sure that there's a long-term plan to stay in that house and you're going to get that money back later on. In 15 years ago, most people seem to think, well, I'll buy, I know this is a small house uh, or it's not really what I want, but I'll sell it in a year or two, flip it and, and move on. Because that's Cause not real estate always goes up, right? Right. <laughs> and you're not seeing that right now. But stay tuned to Welcome Home Radio. When we get back from this first commercial break, we're going to talk more about why are we having a housing shortage? Welcome back. Welcome home radio. This is Don Scordino. We have Tony Tobin here with us today of Tobin Loans of Western Pioneer Financial. And um, Tony does, well, Tobin Loans. I take it you do loans. Yes. uh, I mean, I started out in lending back in, oh gosh, almost 20 years ago. Um, Things were a little different then. And then I got my real estate license and I did both for a while. And, uh, you know, I just got to the situation where when I would do a loan, I do such a good job that the realtor referred me another deal. And then the other realtor on the other deal referred me a deal. And it just got to the point where I just had referrals lined up that my real estate just kind of took a back seat. And to be honest, I like lending a lot more and it just kind of took off since then. But definitely a lot of changes over the last 20 years in lending. You probably didn't know this about me, but I was a lender for a while. I did exactly what you did. I did them both Mm -hmm. and I was doing loans. But when it came down to it and I said, you know, I'm gonna pick one, I picked real estate sales, residential sales, as opposed to lending. Mm -hmm. The numbers, they kept jumping at me. (laughs) No, I got you, I got you. You know, and it's funny, I never liked math growing up. It was just something that kind of came to me as it kind of went on. And, you know, we're also seeing a lot of changes within lending right now. Um, As a lot of you are aware, we did see an uptick in interest rates recently. And, uh, you know, maybe that will slow down the housing situation. But we did kind of touch on the housing crisis and how we got here. And maybe you can give me a little bit more insight on the timeline of how things kind of progress. Because when you say, okay, well, how many houses are available today? That's great. But what was it last year, the year before? And how did we get to this point, really? Okay. um, A a timeline for how this all happened. Let's go back to the year 2000. Okay. 2000. Right when I started. (laughs) uh, Yeah. um, 2000 to 2006. I've referred to that before on this show as the steroid era. Yeah, definitely. Because just like home runs were juiced up on steroids in baseball, we were juiced up in our industry with those exotic, toxic loans uh, where people could go and, and qualify without really qualifying. And hit a home run. Yeah. <laughs> hey, that was a good one, Tony. Yeah. And so people were getting into homes that didn't have a 
a long, sustainable future to them. Mm. Uh, many of them were the adjustable rate loans where they could afford it today w- when the interest rate was low, but in two, three, four years when the rate went way, uh, went up, mm-hmm. um, th- they could no longer sustain it. So builders were building like crazy. I mean, there was no housing shortage then. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was also a landlord at that time, and I could tell you that um, – People would, they would, there was freedom of movement. Mm -hmm. People would say, well, we're going to move. Sorry, Don, we're going to move out. We're going to move to a different location or, or we're going to move to a bigger home. And and there was that freedom of movement, that choice. Then the housing market kind of took its, its crash. And let's say 2007 to 2013. Mm Mm-hmm. I've referred to that, that as the sedative era. <laughs> so rather than steroids, now the banks sedated us mm-hmm. and said, oh, no, no lending is tough. Um, it, uh, it, it, and now, and builders quit building. Be, they had to because mm-hmm. there was this oversupply of brand new homes that still had never been bought. I remember over in southeast Madera County, southeast, the city of Madera, there were several subdivisions that were built out about halfway. Half of those homes that were already built were never bought. They still had all the lots to build on, mm-hmm. and the builders pulled out. Mm-hmm. And I remember that because I had a, a Bank of America foreclosure account, so I was their listing agent. I was pretty busy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And a lot of them out there. Um, So why would, how could a builder build new homes then? So, and and now that caused us to get behind because we still had people moving into California. Mm -hmm. We still had natural growth, you know, uh, people growing up and and wanting a place for their own family. Then from 2013 to 2019, we started to regain the deficit. Mm -hmm. Builders started building again, but cautiously. No, I remember working with builders. I worked with some of the national builders, uh, Lenaris and Tech, some of the bigger guys, and we would just bird dog places that fell apart, like you're talking about, where they have sticks in the air, a few places still not going. They just go buy it, put in a realtor, build it out, and uh, yeah, the rebuilding started. Sticks in the air. Yeah. Oh, man, that's a good one. (laughs) (laughs) That's just my old uh, jargon there. That's when we see just a frame, um, not a completed house. Um, We just call it sticks in the Uh, air. I got the picture. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I've just never heard that before. Uh, It's just some of my old builder uh, terminology, I guess. It's just uh, sticks in the air is when we see it framed up, and blue topped is when we finally see the ground um, flattened uh, electricity and uh, water taken care of and things of that sort. And uh, yeah, and then that's kind of what we're running into now is what trials and tribulations the builder's running into. Um, something I'm hearing a lot about right now is uh, VMT, which is going to be the new way of deciding whether or not a project gets approved. Uh, the old way, it was more on 
how the commute would be. They didn't want to create any impact zones. So imagine a city like Los Angeles or San Francisco where you already have traffic and then all of a sudden you build another community where there's a bad traffic area. Well, it's only going to get worse and worse and worse. So builders were basically incentivized to build outward and build outward so they can get their approvals. Well, the problem they're seeing with that is it created too much of a commute. So if you live 30, 40 minutes out of the city, it would take you 30, 40 minutes to go to the grocery store or any other utilities. So they begun this new way of uh, looking at properties with VMT and vehicles, uh, vehicle miles traveled. So what they're looking at is how far you have to drive before you see a uh, appropriate place to do your local services. So for most builders, if you're going to develop, you're going to develop in an area that has not been developed yet. And generally speaking, after a neighborhood starts growing, then the commercial places start coming in because you're not going to build a commercial, you know, retail center in the middle of nowhere with no population. So by doing it this way, it's kind of a backwards thought that we can't build out until there's a commercial development, but commercial development won't occur until there's a build. So we're kind of even more into a hurt situation where even if we wanted to build, even if they got the land to build, they're still not able to build. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of new regulations. Well, VMT mm -hmm. is a regulation yes. imposed by the state that greatly impacts the ability to, to uh, build. And it used to be, back in the old day, supply and demand is what regulated that. Mm -hmm. If there was a demand from buyers for this type of housing, for apartments or for ranchos, um, that's what builders would build based on supply and demand and what the market wanted. Now, things have changed. Now, builders kind of have to build based on what your state government says this is what you we want you to do. But where do you build if there's nowhere to build? Okay. That's that's just the concern I have. Like, do they go back into the city and start redeveloping in other areas? I'll give you a good example. Let's say the city of Santa Barbara. Hmm. Where do you build if there's nowhere to build? And that's a good one because on one side they got the ocean, on the other side they have the mountains. I mean, there's really where can you build? Mm -hmm. But here in the central and you keep green spaces too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, here in the Central Valley, that's not so much a concern. Mm -hmm. So I read an article about when it comes to building homes. There's really two Californias. There's the one close to the ocean, and then there's the one not close to the ocean. <laughs> and but yet they're all regulated by by one set of rules. Yeah, you know, and, and that's the kind of thing why we have state government versus national government. There are some things that will fly throughout the United States with no problem and some things that are specific to the state, some things that are specific to the county. And I think there just needs to be a little bit more specific thought into this legislation as opposed to a general rule of thumb, which could hurt other communities. Yeah, yeah. And what's always driven our market is supply and demand. If buyers wanted something and the builders would build it, there was that natural flow of money, mm -hmm. the, the natural economy. Um, it is being regulated right now. It, and, you know, I think there's going to come a point in time where families are going to have to accept living in an apartment 
as opposed to a big home because that's what's available. But if we run into the fact that that is the case, and then that means the demand for the rental will go up. So that rental, that apartment may not even be affordable if that's all that's available because the demand is so high. Mm -hmm. As you say, supply and demand is the key of everything. So, yeah. Well, and despite, reg despite regulations, supply and demand will always live. True. That, or that the uh, natural economy of supply and demand. Yeah, you're, you're right. So if people are forced into apartments rather than bigger homes, then eventually those prices are going to go up. And that's what we're seeing right now, by the way. Mm -hmm. Apartments are really going up. Well, and that's why with the lower interest rates, homes being more affordable, right now there's a spillover into homes. More affordable, though, is uh, a perspective point because, yes, maybe a year ago, but now because of this demand, it might be losing the affordability aspect where, hey, you got financing to buy the house, you got your 5%, 10% down payment, you got your closing costs taken care of, and now you find out you have to pay another 10% of cash above to even get into the house. So the affordability aspect is kind of changing as well based on the demand. And it's all one of those things where I feel like they're not getting to the root of the problem. They're just you know, taking care of the top just to kind of sweep it under the rug. We need to just get to the root of the problem so we don't see this persist. Right. And sometimes, like let's say apartment rents are going up. Mm -hmm. So they come out last year with this new regulation called statewide rent control. Well, that kind of killed building of apartments. Mm -hmm. Not killed, but really squashed it. And that's just going to cause more of a supply problem. Mm -hmm. So you've got to make it to where people want to, to do things. But, okay, so when we come back from our next commercial break, this is why you guys are going to like Tony Tobin as our guest, because he doesn't just come here to talk about a problem. He wrote down, he's got a four-point solution, and we're going to go into that. So stay tuned to Welcome Home Radio, 940 ESPN. Welcome back to Welcome Home Radio. It's Don Scordino, your host, and we're here with Tony Tobin of Tobin Loans. Western Pioneer Financial. Um, Thank tell you me for about me. Western Pioneer Financial. Well, it's uh, it's a really really great company. Um, Scott Hanley's the broker of owner. Uh, we've been actually close friends for quite some time. Went to elementary school together, and uh, we know we started off as a real estate and financial company. And like I said at the beginning, I did both, and we all kind of did both. And as the years grew on, we kind of found out where our fit was. So I kind of stayed on to the lending end, and uh, Scott did most of the real estate. But what makes the company a bit more unique is Scott actually fixes and flips houses. So he's one of the people out there trying to create inventory for us and beautifying the area. And it's just been a one-stop shop for anyone with any real estate or financial needs. And the great thing about flipping a home is it makes the home available because let's say the home was trashed out mm -hmm. all right it's got health and safety issues well there's no financing for that uh you got to pretty much pay cash exactly um so the typical first-time home buyer that's not even 
part of their 317 available homes. Yeah, and then also the desirability aspect. I mean, you can afford the house, but do you really want to move into it? And then when you have developers and investors like Scott, they can go in, they find a property that maybe isn't looking the best, and they'll fix it up and make the whole neighborhood go up in value. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, you came here with some solutions yes. to this issue. Let me start off with one that's being proposed at the federal level, and that is a $15,000 tax credit for down payment assistance. Yeah. Tell, so basically the, the $15,000 tax credit is something that can be enacted immediately so it will help them uh, get into the house. And the reason for this is the truth. It's not easy to get into a house. It's not affordable for a lot of people. So they thought by giving this $15,000, it would give people the money they need to get into the home. Now, this is great, but the issue I run into is the last time that this came out back in 08, it was a great product, but we did see some increases in artificial demands in the market. For instance, we had a $10,000 tax credit last time, and towards the end of the tax credit, there was a bit of a buying frenzy for everyone to get in at that time so they can get their credit. And we saw an average increase of about 30% on houses trying to get in. Um, I'm sorry, $30,000, about 10% to get in. Uh, and the credit was only $10,000. So hypothetically speaking, let's say you bought a $300,000 house and you saw your values drop about 10%. Well, you got a $10,000 tax credit, but you lost $30,000. So at the end of the day, you really didn't gain anything from it. Now, when this came out, it was at a different time. There wasn't down payment assistance available, and our economy needed to get people back out there because it was basically, I mean, when I was selling real estate back in 07, it was 90, 80% investors. That was it. Investors were just picking up properties left and right. Of course, there were people still buying, but it wasn't like how it is now. This tax credit got people okay with buying. And it was funny, when I was selling new home sales, the question I always got was, what's the lowest you can do? It was just a competition for who could get the best deal. When this tax credit came in, I felt like the tide had turned. People were start buying what value was, and they weren't trying to get the best possible deal. They were just getting what was available. So for that sense, it was a great program at a great time. Now we're running into unaffordability and putting this into the market is only going to hot and make things even more hot. It's going to make things even more difficult by bringing even more buyers to an overcrowded market. Um, so my thought process was, well, we already have down payment assistance. So I have some clients that come to me and they say, hey, Tony, I want to go buy a house. And I say, okay, well, how much do you have saved up? They have, you know, $5,000, maybe $10,000, maybe just enough for the down payment, not understanding there's also closing costs involved as well. And generally speaking, we'll go into a down payment assistance loan. They'll get into a house with a low down payment and they'll be able to retain home ownership. Now, the funny thing about down payment assistance, I used to tell people, don't mess with it. It's an inflated interest rate. It'll bite you in the butt. Just save up your money. Well, that was years ago. Honestly, if you were looking to save up the money to buy a house, at best, we'll talk six months, maybe a year's time to save up the money you need. Look at what house prices do in that time. So even though you'll be getting into a down payment assistance with maybe a bit higher of an interest rate or a loan you have to pay off later, well, that's still the money you would have saved up anyway. And after waiting six months to the year, the value's gone up so much, you're in a better position by getting in now. So these programs are available right now. So I thought, 
why don't we change this? If our issue is an inventory problem, instead of giving $15,000 to buyers to get into the market, let's give money to the sellers to maybe open up the inventory. And then the double-ended sword of that is, okay, now you're giving a bunch of people who just got a bunch of money from selling their house even more money. Well, that's just going to create an even bigger snowball problem. My thought is to maybe break it up over several years. So a $15,000 credit maybe over a three-year period. So they get $5,000 a year. So it's not really realized within the purchase, but they still get the benefit. And that's just one of my points to the plan. Yeah, because I cannot imagine more buyers at this time. So giving a $15,000 tax credit to buyers right now will create more buyers, but we're already out of, out of balance with supply and demand. Exactly. It's, we have a low supply and a high demand. It's only going to make the demand higher. And that $15,000 is just going to get slapped right on top of their offer price. They're going to probably do the same normal financing, the same value, and then just offer $15,000 above. And then it's just going to create a bigger problem that they're at right now. And they're also talking about slashing mortgage insurance rates and doing that to maybe make it more affordable. That's not going to have the dent that we need. What we need at the end of the day is inventory and not just inventory, but affordable inventory. So the way I see it, and I'm going back to uh, high school economics class. Mm-hmm. All right. And that is supply, supply and demand. The government stays out of it. It, it let the free market work itself out however the government's role is to when something gets totally out of balance to step in and and help out and and they have done that so effectively i mean i go back to the not that i go back to the 1930s (laughs) but (laughs) when hud came from history class yeah when hud came out Mm -hmm. perfect example uh and the fha loans Mm -hmm. that helped people get into homes it created uh home ownership yeah, before that, it was 50%, I believe, you had to put down to get financing. I mean, who has 50%? I mean, granted, houses were like 90000 but you're making $0.50 cents an hour at that time. So it was all relative of not being affordable. And, you know, that was a great program. And our government has done a great job to help us out and to put us where we need to be and to regulate us to this point. However, I feel this is where we're just sweeping things under the rug and we need to get to the root of the problem. So, for instance, let's say we're able to get all these hurdles. Let's say everyone gets their money to buy their house, and let's say builders have the ability to build their house. Well, why would a builder with demand so high build a house for $250,000 when they could sell that house for $400,000? Yeah. Well, and I don't know that a builder can build for $250,000. Let's go locally here. I talked with a, a builder not too long ago who was saying, before they put a shovel in the ground, they've spent $80,000 on, on fees, um, uh, you know, putting in the infrastructure like the streets. Mm-hmm. I always would have assumed it was the, the cities and counties that did that. Yeah, it's partnerships with PG&E, AT&T, got to get fiber optics, internet, and all that stuff just to get the ball rolling. Right. So... in fees and development fees and permits and all, then you still got the cost of the land. So you're up around $180,000 per lot right now. Now you got the cost of lumber going up. You've got 
labor costs going up? It's about three times now in the last few years. Lumber has just gone up so much more, and I don't see it going down anytime soon either. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't know how a builder can build a $250,000 home and, and make it a, a, a big enough home to where people would want to stay there. It, and here's a really good example, too. You hear about this subsidized housing going in for um, uh, to, to bring in homeless people. Mm-hmm. And in San Francisco, there was a project. It was $450,000 per unit, and, and they basically built an apartment complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, you know, just on one small plot of land, you probably had 100 units there at 450,000 a piece. So how does a builder here in the valley build and make uh, an affordable home at 250? Well, that's one of my other plans points. Um, my point two was to subsidize similar to that, but you know, like when you go to the store and you buy some milk, milk really costs about $6, maybe $7 a gallon. But the reason why you're able to get it for three, $4 a gallon is because of the government subsidy in order to make it more affordable. Now, I feel like we should do something similar with our builders. So a builder, like you said, even if they could build a house for 250000 they probably couldn't. And if they could, what's the benefit of them selling that house for that amount? So what we should do is create a subsidy so the builders still make the same profit and the house becomes affordable for those that can't. Now, I'm not just saying let's give a bunch of free money to builders and sell it for less, but we have a population that has been underserved. And when you look at the adjusted gross income of the Central Valley, a majority of the people are going to be around that $300,000 to $250,000 price range, but the houses that are coming out are not going to be at that range. So if we create this subsidy for builders to build those houses, we create income limits, similar like we do with down payment assistance programs and other programs we have in place, so it's not manipulated by those that can't afford, we can create a whole generation of families to be homeowners and have that generational wealth to give to their families and their kids and thereafter, and hopefully put a stop or at least put a somewhat slow to this uh, population housing issue. Great. Tony, we got to go to our next commercial break, but um, stay, everybody stay tuned to Welcome Home Radio. We have more on his four points that will correct this whole problem. Thank we, you. we hope. Thank you. Welcome back to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino, your host, and here with us we have Tony Tobin. Uh, Tony is with Tobin Loans of Western Pioneer Financial, specializing in loans. And here we are talking about building, developing, growth. So what that tells me about Tony is you have a love for your industry. Oh, definitely. And that's the reason why I wanted to come on here and talk with you and share as much as I can. I'm not one of those people just to sit idly by, let things happen, and then just accept my circumstances. These are all problems we have control over. We have uh, political representatives that are here to hear your concerns. They just may not be aware of them. So with this housing issue that we have right now, you need to let your politicians, you need to let your representatives know that you need to make some changes. And there are some changes available, like I you know, set out for here. 
instead of just giving money away to everybody, we could use money in a better way to stop this problem from snowballing, either by giving incentives for developers to develop in opportunity zones that would help an underserved population, or subsidizing their bills to make it more affordable for them to help with that population, or removing certain restrictions like VMT, which like we mentioned is great in Santa Barbara, maybe great in Sacramento, but out here in Fresno, it's hurting our ability. So we need to not have this one size fits all legislation. I need to let your representatives know about that. Yeah, yeah. And that's what the legislators are there for, to hear the voices. That's why we have local people, not just federal, because uh, this way the locals can hear you. Locals actually are the ones that develop a lot of the building uh, criteria or the zoning and such. Now they are regulated by the state because uh, the state has a lot to do with the legislation on property rights and property terms. Yeah, but if you reach out to your local representatives and you let them know what's going on, they could address it to the state and we can get things moving. We just have to realize that there's a lot more we can do out here. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I cut you short in the last segment on your, your four-point solution. Yeah, let me just kind of summarize it real quick. So uh, point one is going to create more opportunities for builders to develop, giving them certain incentives to develop in opportunity zones. So if they say want you to stay in city limits, well, if we can only sell to that demographic in a certain price point, it has to make dollars and cents. The cost of lumber is going up, the cost of materials are going up. We have to make it profitable for the builder and affordable for the buyer. So we have to create these incentives to do so. In addition, these incentives can be used as a tax incentive for future developments. So it creates a consistent development. It's not just free money, taxes, uh, tax credits for new developments to ensure it's a consistent problem. Uh, number two is giving a tax credit to sellers, not buyers. Have it broken up for a few years and entice a seller to maybe move out of their property. And um, third, streamline the permit process. Now this, I think, is going to be the biggest issue. Uh, we need to streamline the permit polling process. Uh, we need to look into VMT restrictions and why that's being implemented out here in Fresno where it doesn't really make sense. And then finally, creating a subsidy for builders to build a house, making it more affordable to the buyer and giving the same profit potential for the builder. And I'm thinking if we implement this four-point plan for at least three to five years, we should see a significant increase. And the great thing about my plan is it's not just a Fresno plan. I believe this four-point plan could be used nationwide. Yeah, a couple of words that you said there that I want to address. Mm -hmm. Profit. Mm -hmm. Okay, I read an article recently on, and I, I Googled, why do we have such a housing shortage? Mm -hmm. And of course, there was all these different answers, but one of them just went on and on about builders making profits. Mm -hmm. And here you're talking about subsidize, you know, uh, helping them out, giving them a credit. Mm -hmm. Profit is not is actually a good word. And think about it. let's say you work for uh, $15 an hour. If why would and that's the going rate? Why would you go to work for $5 an hour and lose money? Yeah, why would you switch jobs to make less money? It makes no sense. Okay, that's an even better way of putting it. Yeah, so it makes no sense. So why would a builder risk everything they own? Mm -hmm. Because they're putting out, in, let's say in a large subdivision, they're putting out millions of dollars at risk mm -hmm. to build that and do it. And they're doing it so that they can also get something for themselves. 
so that they can pay all the subcontractors, the electricians, the lumber suppliers, the uh, concrete people, pay all of them, pay the cities and counties for all their fees. Well, there's got to be a profit in there for the builder. Well, and the thing is, is what you have to touch on is that is so many incomes that you're helping. When building booms, it helps so many people within the community. Like you said, you got construction workers working, you got cement people, people working. They're bringing paychecks back home to their families. They're out buying food. They're helping restaurants. They're building. So in and itself, by getting this stimulated, it creates a snowball of benefit for the community. I'm sick of all these programs where they just basically rob Peter to pay Paul, and it's just not fixing anything. We need more creativity in legislation, and we need these situations where one action creates another reaction that snowballs to a better result. Exactly, yeah. And the other word you used was streamline. Mm -hmm. Now, to me, that's cutting costs too, Yeah. because exactly. it's cutting down on time. If it takes that developer, that builder, years to uh, put a project together where they're risking a million bucks in their their uh, expense streamlining it and cutting it from years to months is is an ideal thing exactly and it's it's simple things now i cannot speak from a matter of fact that i understand the ins and outs of the process and where the bottlenecking occurs, but I believe if we have a team look into it, we could open it up. Now, I have heard from some builders as to where the issues were, but I think if we have a complete streamlined process, that will help development because the other concern is money being held too. If you have a piece of land you're looking to develop in two years from now, you have to keep your money in your bank because when that time comes, you need to have it available. So having all these projects just sitting there, they have all this money that they can't even use, and they also have to be scared that they have money for their other projects. So by being able to realize the shovel in the dirt sooner, it'll create that liquidity and create the ability for them to build and not be as scared to not invest if they don't have to hold on to that money for that longer period of time and they know what their future plans look like. Yeah. So when something sits, uh, let's say the process is not streamlined, something sits, <clears throat> that's like parking your money mm -hmm. and it's not useful. And this could be a situation where we're not seeing it now, but where the national builders could take an extreme advantage, publicly traded companies over the local builders, because they have the ability to buy land for a year, sit on it, and then come back to it three years later and then develop it, where local builders don't have that ability. So in and itself could also help the local small guy as well. Okay, but I, I love our local builders, and I think most people can tell, but that's because they have withstood all the ups and downs of the market. Yep. They've been wise. Now, I don't think every community has a group of of local homegrown builders like we do. You know, and, and that's funny because when I worked in new home sales, um, I worked with some of the larger builders. All of a sudden, I'd sell out a community and I'd say, okay, Tony, well, do you want to move to Los Angeles? <laughs> what do you mean? Well, we're done with Fresno now. Well, we're, we'll go back. We have a few pieces, but for the next two years, you can't what? And that's the thing about the local guys. They're not going to just say, sorry, Fresno, we're gone. They're going to make sure they're here. So keeping them around is going to be very important for our future as well. Yeah. And coming out of the recession, let's say 2013, 2014, it was the local people that, that built. And in fact, they even still built during the downtimes mm -hmm. um, because that's 
what they had to do. They didn't have the option of, well, we're going to uh, Las Vegas, Nevada now mm -hmm. to build. No, this is their community, mm -hmm. and they were building here. They hired local architects, local. Yep. Um, they got local help, and that helped our community grow. Exactly. I mean, when you look at places like uh, Silicon Valley and how um, affluent they are, it's it's because of the simple fact that the community redistributes the wealth within that community, and we could do the same thing. Yeah. Tony, I want to thank you for coming in. Um, we have 30 seconds left. Give us your best loan advice, being you are a loan officer. Gotcha. Well, yeah, thank you so much for taking time. This is what I have to say, guys. Interest rates have climbed up quite significantly over the last two weeks, but here's the good news. The cost is only per rate. So hypothetically speaking, let's say someone quoted you a 2.875 rate last week. You might find yourself paying 1% possibly more for that rate. But if you just move up the scale a little bit, you might be at maybe a 3.125, and that's only really $30, $40 more a month. So don't get scared about those rates. And the bottom line, don't wait for a better time. If it makes sense today, buy today. Yeah, there you go. If it makes sense today, buy today. And with that, uh, thank you for listening to Welcome Home Radio. Thank you.